Now, I don't know what kind of movies you like, but I like westerns. Now, it is a, an acquired taste. I realize that. Um, that was supposed to be funny, I guess. <laughs> you all like westerns, too? I, I'm told it's a dad thing from my kids. But anyway, Sandra does not, and that's okay. So when she's when she has a job that she's out playing or whatever, she's not going to be home at night, I'll, I'll sometimes watch one. And the other, uh, probably about a month ago, I was looking through potential movies to watch, and I saw this interesting advertisement or a, uh, you know, a, a description of the movie, and the movie was Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, and I was kind of drawn in by the title. Um, the movie's based on the experience of our armed forces in Afghanistan and their Afghani interpreters. And it's not a true story, but it's kind of pulled together from their experiences. And so it describes this uh, <clears throat> master sergeant, his name's John Kinley, and his unit loses their interpreter at a, uh, through a truck bomb, and so he has to find a new interpreter. And he's introduced to this character that his name is Ahmed. Now, initially, there's a lot of distrust, because as you can imagine in Afghanistan, you don't know who you're working with. You know, you don't know if this is somebody who's actually working for the Taliban and is trying to infiltrate or what. So there, there's just, a, it takes a long time for these two to eventually trust each other. But what the sergeant eventually realizes is this interpreter has worked with the Taliban in the opioid trade. And so he knows a lot about the, the Taliban. But the Taliban had murdered his son. And so he actually is an enemy of the Taliban. And through the course of their, their operations, they, they stumble into a, a cache of arms about 60 miles north of their air base, and the entire unit is wiped out except for Kinley, the sergeant, and this interpreter. And the movie describes their path back through Afghanistan to cover that 60 miles and get back to their air base uh, safe. Uh, in the course of this, um, they are actually attacked by a group of fighters, and Kinley is, is wounded, and then he's uh, hit in the head, and he doesn't regain consciousness until they're, he kind of floats in and out of consciousness until they're safely back. And the story is about this Afghan interpreter who actually carries him the 60 miles to get back to the base. And it's not until the sergeant is home recuperating, and he knows that the interpreter had a big role to play, but he doesn't know everything that's going on. And uh, he starts to, as he's coming back into consciousness and recovering, he realizes that the promise that the US government gave to this interpreter and all the interpreters was to provide them a visa and provide them safe passage to, to the United States. That was not done. And so he realizes that he has a debt to pay to this interpreter who saved his life because the interpreter is now a wanted man in Afghanistan. I mean, the fact that these guys were able to get through 60 miles and not get recovered or not get captured brought a lot of, um, it, it kind of embarrassed the, the Taliban. And so there's, his interpreter is a wanted man and Kinley is doing everything he can through regular channels to secure the visa and get him out. And he's just running into a brick wall one after another. And 
eventually he decides that he's going to go himself. So he secures uh, the money to do that out of his own uh, income, and he contracts with a military contractor to get into Afghanistan undercover because he's known too, and the Taliban, if they find out he's in the country, are going to come after him. And he has to locate his interpreter friend and then bring them out to safety. And I won't go into all the details, but what I enjoyed about this movie was this idea <coughs> or movies that follow this kind of redemptive story. I mean, he has, he has to honor the promise that the U.S. government did not honor. He has to go back into the country at his own cost, and then he has to rescue his friend. And what we're going to see today in Zachariah's song follows a similar path. Um, the God is remembering his promises, that he has visited us, and that he has redeemed us. Yet we find ourselves today still waiting for God to complete some of those promises. So Zechariah encourages us today to keep waiting because God has remembered his promises in the past, has visited and redeemed us, and he will continue to remember his promises to visit us and save us from all those who oppose his kingdom. So let's pray, and then we're going to look into Luke, the first chapter of Luke. Lord, we just ask that you would open our blind eyes to your word, remind us that you remember your promises, that you have visited us, <clears throat> and in sending your son to offer his life as a ransom for us, you have and you will save us. This Advent season remind us that this baby in the manger is very God in the flesh, the suffering servant of Isaiah and the coming king and king of kings and lord of lords of revelation. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'll be in Luke chapter 1, and Zechariah's song occurs, and we'll be looking at that, that's verse 68 through 79, but before we can get to the song, we have a little bit of background information that we have to first address. So <clears throat> this Zechariah, we're introduced to him earlier in the first chapter of Luke, and rather than reading the whole section, it starts in verse 5. I'm just going to summarize some of the key elements in uh, who Zechariah is and um, how we come to this song that we're going to look at. Uh, you, I would recommend you read it at some time in the next day or so. It's, a, it's an engaging uh, story. So Zachar we're introduced to Zachariah and his wife. They're childless, and he is a priest. They are people that are, that are, are described as blameless before God. And as Zechariah goes in to offer the incense in the temple to fulfill his priestly duties, an angel appears to him <coughs> standing beside the altar. And as everyone is when an angel appears, um, Zechariah is very frightened, and the angel says, Do not be afraid. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. And the angel describes who this son will be. It's John the Baptist. He will prepare the way for the Lord, and you're to name him John. And um, Zechariah uh, says, 
asks the question, how shall I know this? Because my wife and I are advanced in age, she's barren. What sign will you give this? Give for this? And kind of in the want to get away moment, he, <laughs> the angel says, I'm Gabriel. I've come from, from God to give this message to you. You're going to be silent for the next nine months while, <coughs> while this son comes to be born. And said, <coughs> because you have not trusted in the word of the Lord. So we have this contrast between Zechariah, who asked for a sign, and Mary, who we looked at last week, who believes the word of the Lord from this same angel, by the way, and she trusts and, and says, let it be as you have said. So, <clears throat> Zachar the irony, and I, there's going to be irony everywhere in this story. The irony is Zechariah asks for a sign, and he gets exactly that. The sign is his silence. So that when he goes out from, his, from the temple, everybody's wondering, A, why he's been in there so long, and B, why he can't say anything. They know that what has happened has been very unusual. And so, you know, you see all these elements. Remember when we studied the book of Samuel, Hannah was without a child, right? And she prayed to God. So there's illusions of that. And this prophet that will come, in Hannah's case, it was Samuel. Here, it's going to be John the Baptist. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, when the child is, uh, is finally born and it's time for him to be circumcised, um, they ask or they want to name the child. And the, usually the, the Hebrew custom is to name it after the father, the son after the father. And the, Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. And they were very puzzled by this, so they asked Zacharias. And he writes it down, his name is John. And at that moment, Zachariah's mouth is open. And that's what we're, the first thing he says is what we're going to look at today. All right, so the one other thing that we need to keep in mind is that what has happened in Israel up until this point. So from the, from the prophecy that Sandra read this morning from Malachi, there is 400 years of silence. That's 11 generations. No word from God at all. No prophet has spoken. And <clears throat> into that, or after that period, the first word from God is this word through Gabriel to Zacharias. That's the first, first time anyone has heard from God in 400 years. And you can imagine uh, what Israel, what it feels like in Israel um, that, um, that, you know, has God forgotten us? Has he abandoned us? Has he left us? Does he even care anymore? And so here you have uh, this word coming to Zacharias, and, it's, and he's, he, he uh, no, God hasn't promised. He hasn't left us. He's speaking again. And the person that doesn't trust that is now thrust back into silence again for nine months. And then out of that silence, his silence, we hear God speaking publicly for the first time. 
to the nation of Israel. So let's look at this together. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 68, running through verse 79. And I'll read it for us. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And now he's speaking of John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of the salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so this morning our thoughts are going to focus on these three reasons we have to rejoice. Just like we saw last week in the Magnificat, Mary's song, Hunter guided us through the three reasons there that we have to rejoice that Christ has come. Here again, we see three reasons to rejoice. First, God has remembered us. Second, God has visited us. And third, God has redeemed us. So we're just going to unpack each one of those first, that God has remembered us. In Zechariah's song, there in the middle, if you didn't catch it in verse 72, he says, and has raised up a, salva- a horn of salvation for us to remember his holy covenant. Now, as I said, 11 generations have passed in, uh, since the last prophet has spoken all the same rituals, the same feast <clears throat> offered year after year without one word from God. And we can certainly imagine that <clears throat> many have abandoned hope that those promises offered so long ago would actually come to pass. But First Peter reminds us, we do not look... <clears throat> this one fact beloved that the with the lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day so even though it seems like a long time in human time god god doesn't exist in the constraints of time this is not a long time he hasn't forgotten those promises zachariah's joy at the birth of john and later jesus show us that God is faithful to his promises and what he has said he will do even though it seems like he has forgotten or abandoned us. Notice also when I said those things, he has remembered, he has visited, and he has redeemed. 
All three are given in the past tense, even though he's speaking of something that is to come. And that's just for the emphasis of <clears throat> the certainty that these things will be, that, that will take place. When the prophets speak in the past tense like this about future events, they are emphasizing it's as if it was already done, the certainty that God will honor what he has spoken. Now we're told in verse 74, what is the purpose of these promises that were given? First, to show the mercy promise to our fathers. So mercy lies underneath this whole song. In God's mercy, the promises were made, not because of any merit in those to whom the promises were made. You know, Abraham didn't have anything that God made this covenant with him. It wasn't because of anything righteous in him, but this promise was made nevertheless in God's mercy. In God's mercy, he came. In God's mercy, he visited. God is doing all these things. So first, <clears throat> to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and then second, that we being delivered from our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And I don't know if you noticed that, but this is a clear reference back to the Exodus. If you remember when God first approached Moses, he says, I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the purpose of the Exodus was to bring the people out so that they might worship and serve God. So that's what's, that's what's embedded here. He's hearkening back to the Exodus. <clears throat> and even when Moses went to the elders, and this is in the Exodus, the third chapter, he goes to the elders of Israel and he says, you shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us and now let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. God was going to break the slavery of his people and bring them out of Egypt to worship him. And so these promises, this deliverance is for a purpose. The purpose is that we might worship and serve God in holiness. Now the language that's actually used around that word redemption is a clear reference to slavery. Um, and it, again, making strong allusion to this slavery in Egypt. <clears throat> but here, in this, at this point, God is doing that, is redeeming again by breaking our, our slavery to sin. God's purpose in delivering us from this slavery is that we might worship in him in holiness and righteousness all our days. So the first thing that we can rejoice in is that God has remembered his promises. The second, that he has visited us, and that's in verse 68. He said, the first words out of Zechariah's mouth is, blessed be God, for he has visited us. And the the way that the language that he's using in terms of the word visit is implying that God has seen, God knows the situation that we're in, 
and he has come to do something about it. Um, he's not indifferent to our condition. He has come as Emmanuel, God, with us. And again, the reference to the Exodus is very strong here. Joseph, when he was speaking to his brothers at the end of his life, said this. He said, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph makes his brothers swear that, that they will take his bones with him. Again, God speaking through Moses now says, God speaking to Moses says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. So this idea of visiting encompasses not only just showing up, but knowing the condition, coming into that condition, and bringing deliverance. So he's, <clears throat> he's remembered his promises, he has visited us, and then finally the third reason to rejoice, he has redeemed us. And so he uses this language of redemption, and we're going to just spend a minute here. How has he done it? He's raised up a horn of salvation. So we'll look at each of those. First, this idea of raised up. This is in verse 69, if you're following along. Here, again, we see the emphasis of the use of the past tense. He has raised past tense up for something that God is about to do. And this idea of raised up is to rouse from sleep, to <clears throat> arise into an upright position. And what it's inferring is that God is coming into history at this point through <clears throat> the, bringing of the birth of Jesus. He's bringing him onto the stage. I have raised up a horn. Now, we don't think of horns as anything, unless you're from Texas and you have a Cadillac, you know, horns don't mean a whole lot. Only Hunter gets that. I guess you guys really are Massachusetts. <laughs> but in the ancient world, a horn meant something. Um, you can think about all those ancient uh, empires and cultures. How did they, what did they use as their standards and the, the images? They were all animals with horns, right? And this is, it's a symbol of strength um, and it's a symbol of glory. Many of the ancient kingdoms <coughs> would use that. Even in Psalm 18, we see this idea of this horn of salvation. And listen to the language that surrounds it. This is Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and my horn of salvation, my stronghold. So this idea of God has redeemed us, he's coming with power, and then it's a horn of salvation. The salvation that Zechariah is speaking of in this song has a broader sense in Greek than we often think of in English. It includes this idea of restoration to a state of safety, soundness, health, 
well-being, and preservation from danger. So God is raising up this horn of salvation. He's going to powerfully work and bring salvation that's going to restore a sense of safety, soundness, health, well-being. And, again, and who are these enemies that God is doing this? Well, there's two, right? There's the one we look at in the mirror every morning inside of ourselves. And then there's the enemy outside, those who oppose Christ's kingdom. This kingdom and king will carry on David's throne forever, and he will deliver from both of those enemies. So we're told where this salvation comes. It comes from the house of David, as promised through the Old Testament. Uh, there are just many references to, to this Davidic kingdom and God bringing one from David. I'll just read you one from Jeremiah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. He has kept uh, the curse spoken to Satan in the garden, that after the fall, the child of Adam and Eve would bruise the head of, of Satan, even though he would bruise his heel. God has kept his promise to Abraham to show mercy to all the nations of the earth, by redeeming them through his offspring. So what do we see all here, just in summary? That he will provide a powerful savior who will deliver from the hand of our enemies, external and internal, and from the hand of all who hate us. We, see, we saw that in verse 71. So we can understand how this prophecy and many others like it in the Old Testament are why the Jews and including the disciples, were expecting a savior who would deliver from Rome because all those things are enfolded in these, in these uh, prophecies. They thought of their enemies only as outside of themselves, but there was a greater enemy to deal with than that of sin and death inside of us. And so with the hindsight of history, we come to understand that these prophecies see Jesus in all he will accomplish without the perspective of time. It's almost as if the prophets see in two dimensions. They see who and what, but they can't see when. And so, um, you know, no one could have thought that all these prophecies would be fulfilled in two comings of a Redeemer. So with the birth of Christ, the God-man comes the suffering servant of Isaiah to deal with the first and our greatest enemy to reconcile us back to God when we were hopelessly lost. And with a warrior's resolve, he sets his face to go to the cross and become the sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty of our sin and to bear the wrath of God for that sin. But that is not the end of the deliverance that this child will bring. The Jews were not wrong to expect a conquering king to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. They just didn't have the timing right. He will come again to subdue every enemy of his coming kingdom. He will come in power and he will come with glory. And these two advents, his first coming and his second coming, are seen together 
in one image here in Zechariah's song. So he has, <clears throat> he has remembered, he has visited, and he has redeemed. And as the added benefit of his grace, he sends one to prepare his people for the coming of this Savior. We see in verses 76 through 79 the, the prophecy that John, this child that is before him, will go before the Savior to give knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins according to the tender mercies of God. <clears throat> he will not only provide salvation, but he will prepare the way for that salvation to be received because of God's tender mercy. So <clears throat> the one last thing we see here is this reference to the sunrise shall visit us from on high in verse 78. Here we see the prophecies of Isaiah clearly in view. <clears throat> Isaiah spoke of a time when people in darkness would see light. Remember that 400 years of silence was a time of darkness. Now the light is shining. Isaiah said in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them the light has shined. The prophetic silence is now broken. The sunrise has come, and God is now sending John to bear witness of this coming light. The true light, which gives light to every man, was coming into the world, and John was to herald it. So let's conclude by just reminding ourselves of the three reasons we have to rejoice that the light has shone in darkness into the darkness of our world, a light that was long promised. He has remembered his promise, so each Advent season, <clears throat> we remind ourselves that Christ, the light of the world, has come, and that Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will come again. He has visited, uh, visited us he has seen what sin has done to this world that he, might, that he created and he has and will come to set things right. God is not a distant observer. He sees, he comes to set things right. And he has redeemed you. He has borne the curse for your sin and provided a righteousness that you could never earn. God has accomplished everything necessary for your salvation so that you might be reconciled to him and be brought into his family and called his sons and daughters. So can I suggest to you two ways that you could respond or that we can respond to this song of joy? First, we wait patiently and expectantly in confidence that God will fulfill in time all that he has promised. The full scope of his salvation will come, that there will be restoration of safety, soundness, health, and well-being, and preservation from every danger, even though it has not been accomplished yet. 
He has been faithful to his promises in the past, and he will, be, he will continue to be faithful to his promises in the future. When the world seems out of control and there's no justice or peace to, to be found, we remind ourselves that things were not created to be like this, that the longing in our hearts is a longing for the paradise that was lost in the fall. And Advent reminds us year after year that the one who came promised to come again, and we are to be patient, hopeful, and expectant while we wait. Now, a word about waiting. Waiting does not mean that we sit and do nothing. We are called to bring a redemptive influence into all the areas of our lives. We are to work for justice, peace, health, well-being, and human thriving. But we recognize that those things won't fully be realized until Christ comes to deal with every enemy at his second return. Second, we rejoice in the mercies of God and what those mercies have accomplished on our behalf. He is the one that made the promises. He is the one who visited us. He is the one who saved us from sin and death. He is the one who will come again and establish his kingdom. Unlike Sergeant Kinley in the covenant, God has no debt to repay us. He came solely because of his gracious, loving, and merciful nature. He doesn't ask us to be something we can never be. He supplies everything we need to be saved. This is grace to the utmost. He even graciously sends a messenger to prepare the way for his coming. And God extends this mercy to each of us. The question is, will you acknowledge your need for rescue and trust wholly in the death of Christ on your behalf and in his provision for perfect righteousness through Jesus Christ and submit to his rule and reign in your life? Let's pray.